You're tuned in to Atlanta Fringe Audio, the podcasting network of the Atlanta Fringe Festival. Want to win a couple of free tickets to the Atlanta Fringe Festival June 5th through 11th? Enjoy Fringe Audio and fill out the Fringe Audio crossword puzzle. It's that easy. 10 winners will be selected. Check out the description box for all the details or visit atlantafringe.org fringe dash audio. Now for the show. It's for mature audiences. It contains adult content. Find other great podcasts like this one at podmoth.network. Gobble, gobble, gobble. Gobble, gobble, gobble. The boniest turkey I've ever eaten. And there's two of them. It's Sophie Schwartz and Caitlin Hart. Hit it! <laughs> In olden days, I glimpsed a dream. I was only for morbid dreamers, but you're not alone. Bring anything wrong. Two goofy gals with deathly interest go on a skeleton inquest. In your headphones, anything Hello and welcome to Anything Bones. I'm Sophie the Butcher Schwartz. And I'm Caitlin Turkey Leg Heart. (laughs) And we are joining you for a very special Thanksgiving Day record of the Anything Bones, the podcast where we talk about bones and bone related topics podcast. Yeah. Today we are recording on Thanksgiving. And then when this episode is released a few days later, we will be in Christmas season. So crank that Santa Claus song. <laughs> Buckle up, because Hanukkah's right around the yes. corner. The winter, the winter holidays are coming with an absolute vengeance. And all you motherfuckers that say it's too early to listen to Christmas music, I'm not ready for Christmas. Get your asses ready. <laughs> well, you better get ready. <laughs> After I have the greatest meal of the year today, I am going to be in full Christmas mode. Yeah, we are going to go over to uh, Friends of the Pod, Nick and Darren's house for a wonderful Friendsgiving. I'm bringing yams. And I'm bringing stuffing and a signature cocktail. Hell yeah. I'm so excited. Yeah, it's going to be bone-tastic. It's going to be a nice time. I'm excited for our Friendsgiving. Speaking of I googled something before we started recording, and I want to get your guess. How many bones are in a turkey, do you think? Oh, shit. You've got me this time. Surprise. Surprise, bitch. Gosh, I'm going to say, like, they can be big birds. I'm going to say 300. 300 bones in a turkey. You went a little over. When I googled it, it said 200. Okay, all right. So we've got about six bones on a turkey. Isn't that awesome? (laughs) Well, there's a reason we eat them and not the other way around. (laughs) That's so interesting. Thank you for that, Caitlin. Yeah, that's your little Thanksgiving slash whatever time of year you want to have a turkey trivia. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Well, speaking of this time of year, I think it's time to get into some thanksgiving-y topics cool yeah i'm excited mine doesn't really have to do with thanksgiving but it's like it's like family it doesn't matter (laughs) well like all things on this podcast sometimes it's a little walk to get there but the view is always spectacular indeed yeah and we were technically supposed to record last night but i was a lazy bitch (laughs) and said can we do it tomorrow please (laughs) And I am firmly in support of lazy bitches everywhere. (laughs) So I said, of course. (laughs) Thank you again. I looked in the mirror, saw a lazy bitch and said, of course. (laughs) I was out like a light. (laughs) You were, but we had a nice little FaceTime conversation just to like check in. Mm -hmm. And it's so adorable. Minnie is like obsessed with the phone, like (laughs) and videos on the phone. She... Like every time Caitlin would take the phone away from her, like she would stare at it and then Caitlin would just put me in front of her and the cat and Minnie would watch me talking to her. She's she's a really smart cat. She's different. She today, actually, this morning, she and I were watching TikToks. (laughs) 
Nice. Because she likes to lay, this is cat corner really fast, like so fast, (laughs) under a minute. (laughs) She likes to lay like next to me, kind of like with my arm around her, not on me. But when I'm watching TikTok, she'll actually get on me so she can have a better view of the phone. And today we were watching a video of a cat and she actually managed to comment on the video, just the letter M. And before I like could get the phone away, the comment was sent. I was like, fuck, (laughs) I just commented M on some random person's cat video. (laughs) What a weirdo. So to make it even weirder, I replied to my own comment and said, oops, sorry, my cat did that. (laughs) And the creator was like, oh, I always like to see cats talking to each other. So it was very silly. (laughs) You know, it's very rare these days we have nice, wholesome interactions on the internet, so I like to hear about that. Thank you. I, I enjoyed it. It it tickled me. Oh Well, are you ready to get tickled by bones? <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right. So when I think of Thanksgiving, or I think of um, this time of year, really, I think of family, right? You know, you gather with your family, be that the one you were born with or the one that you make through connections in your life. You know, we all have special people. And so when I was thinking of family, I thought of the family. (laughs) And so today we're going to be talking about the origins of the mafia in America. Hell yeah. Spooky, scary. Spooky, scary criminals. (laughs) (laughs) Do you talk about casinos at all? Uh, there will be some gambling. Hell yeah. Yeah. When I did that casino case, uh, Bugsy, I think was his name, but I can't remember his last name. I remember my favorite part was that they would use uh, boats to gamble on so that you couldn't catch them. And like, it was kind of unclear whether they could, whether it was legal or not to gamble in a boat. <laughs> I think riverboat gambling, it's a joke, but it's a thing. Like, what is, I think it's Missouri, maybe, that you can only gamble on riverboats. That's weird. All right. So we're talking about the mafia. Let me get the sources off real quick, just because a bitch forgot last week. (laughs) Keen-eared listeners would have caught future Sophie slipping those sources in. (laughs) Well, sometimes it's hard because you don't want to give away key things about the story and it's like in the sources. Anyway, we always cite our sources with links in our website. Also, if anybody's like, give me credit. We do. Uh, Always. And thankful for your contributions. Yes. (laughs) So we've got all things interesting. Grunge.com. Uh-huh. Themobmuseum.org. And then two articles from Wikipedia. Love. Love. So the beginnings of the mob in America is is traced back to urban ghettos in the 19th century, where the Irish, Italian, Eastern European Jews, hey, would struggle together to survive under the oppression of poverty in their new land. Yeah, that makes total sense. A lot of the times these immigrants were very much, um, there was a lot of prejudice against them. And so it was very hard for them to get good paying jobs. And so usually what was offered to them was lower paying jobs or criminal work, which sucks. Yeah, I mean, it kind of you're in a in between a rock and a hard place there. Yeah, exactly. It's it's kind of a non choice almost. So within this booming time of around 1880 to 1924, more than 4 million Italian immigrants came to live in the United States. Lots. Lots. And so in cities across the United States, Italian communities started welcoming in members of organized crime families from the homeland. Okay. Yeah. Seems like it's going to bite them in the ass later, but yeah. Well, they would welcome, of course, the these criminal families, and they would run what were called black hand rackets. Sounds like the worst game of tennis ever. <laughs> yeah, you just get hit in the hand so many times, it's just black with bruises. <laughs> and then you pay us your money. Yeah, and you're like, why did I do this? I hurt and I'm broke. <laughs> but at least I feel protected. Um, <laughs> So these black hand gangs, they 
this was more of a technique which involved like extortion and protection rackets. So they'd basically be like, hey, we're protecting the community. Please pay us. And they needed that protection because, like I said, there was a lot of prejudice against Italians when they first arrived into this country. So these black hand gangs would end up offering businesses protection from these prejudices in exchange for money. Well, that's hard because they're actually they actually give a shit about you. And they're actually trying to protect you from when I'm guessing the real like regular police are not doing anything. Oh, I could. I didn't look into this, but I could bet you dollars to donuts. They did not give a shit. Yeah. They're like, oh, crimes against immigrants. Who cares? And there's we still see cases like that today uh, where police just like don't give a shit. Yeah. yeah and it's, it's interesting. And th- yeah. you'd think we'd have evolved more beyond that, but. Yeah. And like, I don't know, I was watching an interesting TikTok video. This is just a slight tangent. But I think it's very interesting to consider through all this is that like when Italians and Irish and Jewish and other like Eastern European people came to this country in the late 1800s, early 1900s, they were not considered white in the same way like white at this time was considered for like Anglo-Saxon British people. And so like, these discriminations would be disseminated into all these other people who weren't considered white. And then they were granted whiteness later in society. And so it's just an interesting through line of our society here in America that like people who are not granted whiteness fall into this oppression uh, through the law and through like economic oppression. Yeah, and then your only lifeline is... A criminal enterprise. So what are you going to do? Exactly. You don't really exactly. have, again, like you said, it's a non-choice. Exactly. So from this climate arrives two criminal families from the homeland of Italy. We have the Mafia and the Camorra. Oh, God. Right? So the Mafia comes from Sicily and the Camorra come from Naples. And if you haven't guessed by now... They do not like each other. Oh, okay. I bet. I bet not. But yeah, uh, yeah, I I guess I could have sussed that out. But yeah, yeah, yeah. And so on the kind of battlefield that was New York at the time, these two groups engaged in what would become to be known as the Mafia Camorra War, which waged in New York from 1915 to 1917. A war for two years between different crime organizations. Yeah. Mafia from Italy, but in New York. Yes. Okay, wow. So many layers. So in New York at the time, the largest gang operating was the Morello Mafia. And they were led by Giuseppe, the clutch hand Morello. And along with his half-brothers, Nick, Vincenzo, and Sirio Terranova. How do you get the nickname the clutch hand? I can send you a picture right now. Oh, <laughs> So this is Giuseppe, and you can see why maybe he, I don't know how he felt about that nickname, but I might not have liked it. Oh, yeah, no, that's, that's not very, that's not a nice nickname. No, he has a, um, it looks like he is missing some of his fingers on his hand. So it is, uh, it's disparaging. Yeah, 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 there's, there's no, oh, God, people suck. Yeah, that's that's one thing we know for sure. I was hoping it was like he was able to like clutch his gun really fast and like kill, shoot it a lot. I don't know. That's that's where I was hoping it was going. Not that they were making fun of a physical disability. Yeah, it would have been nice if it was about him as a person. <laughs> but he was Giuseppe Morello was actually the first known mafia member to emigrate to the United States. And him and six other Sicilian uh, mafia members actually fled to New York after they murdered 11 wealthy landowners and the chancellor and vice chancellor of a Sicilian province. Oh, okay. So they were like, we got to get out of town. America sounds nice. (laughs) Yeah. The land of opportunity. Exactly. And so on the other side of this, also seeking opportunity, are the two Camorra gangs. 
And now the Kimura in this story is split up into two kind of independently working gangs. And I had to literally color code my notes about this. <laughs> so do the Kimura gangs get along with each other or no? No. Okay. Okay. And they don't even like each other. Jesus Christ. Time. This is like West Side Story. It is. It very much is. But the two Kimura gangs, one was led by Pellegrino Morano, and he was in Coney Island, and the other was led by Alessandro Varello in a coffee shop in Brooklyn on Navy Street. So these are our players. And the Kimura, like we kind of just talked about, they share a common, like, they're under the same umbrella, but they're not as tight-knit as the Mafia. The Mafia is more about family and they work together a lot better whereas the Kimura are like we're all under this umbrella but I'm gonna do my own thing and you can do your own thing okay so these two groups the mafia and the Kimura didn't always like viciously hate each other they would even sometimes invite each other to like barbecues at each other's houses sounds delicious yeah, and so they, for a period of about 10 years, they got along okay, but tensions started to grow. And like I said, the mafia ran protection rackets for groceries, ice, and coal, which were three things that everybody needed at the time. So they had a real monopoly on the Italian neighborhoods in that way because everyone needed these things. Right. And that made them very rich. The mafia was doing very well uh, financially. On the other side, because all of these slightly more legal businesses were taken by the mafia, the Camorra were left with things like gambling, sex work and drugs. So they, you know, we have two very different groups running very different businesses. And the Kimura were only, whereas the mafia could operate out in the open doing whatever, the Kimura had to kind of sneak around and be more sneaky. And that made them pretty bitter. So tensions really came to a head in 1913 when Nick Terranova, who was part of the mafia, he had become the mob boss after his brother Giuseppe went to jail in 1910. Sorry, Giuseppe. And he decided that he wanted to... The mafia wanted to take control of gambling from Camorra boss Joseph DeMarco. Yeesh. I don't think that's going to go over very well. So the Morellos were like, in order to take over this gambling racket, we got to first take out the Delgadio the Delgadio brothers, who controlled gambling in East Harlem. And the Morellos killed uh, Niccolo Delgado and then scared his brother half to death. Yikes. <laughs> The next target, of course, was the big dog, Joseph DeMarco. And that's going to be much harder to pull off than just these small time brothers. And DeMarco ran a several gambling establishments and a restaurant. And the reason that they had big beef with DeMarco, other than that they wanted to take his gambling business, was that DeMarco had tried to have Nick Terranova killed. But then in return, Nick turned around and had DeMarco shot through the neck. Uh, and killed him? No, he survived. Oh, well, okay. That's that's pr good. Um, God, there's just so much animosity. Right? Why can't they just get along? Well, why can't they have their thing and the other ones have their thing? Like, it just it sounds like there was some greediness. I was going to say you hit it straight on the head. The thing is greed. No one's ever happy where they're at, mm -hmm. you know? So DeMarco survives getting shot in the neck. But of course, the mafia is a very persistent organization. So they send even more gunmen after him and they shoot him while he's laying back in the barber's chair. Oh, that's cold. And he survives. Oh, well, that's good. You're just trying to enjoy a haircut and you get shot. That's fucked up. Yeah. So they're getting the mafia is getting extremely frustrated by this point. They're like, are you fucking kidding me? Why can't we kill this guy? And so they decide they're actually the Terranova brothers turn to a different sect of the Camorra family. This is where we get those Navy Street boys coming in. And they hire these Navy Street um, sect of the Camorra to go kill another member of the Camorra, DeMarco. Okay. And they find DeMarco and they shoot him. 10 times during a backroom poker game. And they do finally kill him 
along with his friend, Nine-Fingered Charlie. Oh, what Charlie ever do to anybody? Probably something, but still. Something. So this sent shockwaves through the entire crime community of New York at the time. And this was very counter to what the Italian community was actually trying to do right now. Pellegrino Morado, who I mentioned earlier, who's a Camorra guy, he wanted unity for all of these Italian crime organizations. He thought that if everybody worked together, they could achieve a lot more instead of fighting. Sure, that makes total sense. I mean, yeah, maybe not totally realistic, but that's a nice perspective. Exactly. But of course, like you said, not totally realistic, because the Morellos, the mafia, had no intention of sharing any of their wealth or influence with the Camorra. And the Camorra knew they were being shut out, and they hated that. And it really ended up making the Camorra ready to make moves against the mafia. In his 2011 book, The First Family, Terror, Extortion, and the Birth of the American Mob, Mike Dash wrote that Morano was incredibly displeased to hear what the Terranovas were doing. And he said, quote, I will show them who Don Pellegrino Morano is. I will have them all killed. So the mafia is just trying to kill off the Camorra, basically. The mafia is trying to shut the Camorra out. And the Camorra know about this, and now the Camorra is coming after the mafia. Got it. Got it. This this is why I had to color code. Yeah, things. there's a lot of there's a lot of players. Morano, who is a Camorra guy, he ends up making the first move. He invites the Terra Nova brothers, who are mafia, over to have a chat about possible unity, about possibly dividing up the gambling rackets in a more fair way. And in preparation for the mafia's arrival, um, Morano had his men smear their bullets with garlic and pepper so that they would make sure that the wounds would be infected. (laughs) Jesus God, that's so weird. It's weird. I, you know, but also is garlic antiseptic? It is, but like they knew that. I know. Yeah, but what? (laughs) So when the mafia gets there, it's only Nick Terranova and one other guy. And um, Moreno is like, whatever, I thought I was going to get more people. He kills them both. So the mafia is completely caught off guard by this. They didn't think the Camorra was capable, you know. And so in this chaos of this it, you know, these this double homicide, the Camorra end up going out and killing six more mafia members. And it's interesting to note that like the Camorra only have about 40 people in their organization at this time, whereas the mafia is much larger, better connected and has better financial resources. So yeah, that's that they're the underdogs and they just killed eight people like on, in one night, it sounds like. Yeah, just boom, boom, boom. They were like, this thing is popping off, so we're going now. Yeah. So after they've eliminated, they have eliminated a good amount of mafia members in their territory. So they start doing basically what the mafia is doing and extorting and offering protection rackets to the community members around them. Unfortunately for them, the the Italian community members are like, hey, we don't think that the Camorra is going to be in charge for very long. <laughs> so we're actually going to pay you kind of whatever we want and you just have to take it. <laughs> OK, that's funny. And the Camorra was just kind of like, "Ugh, fine, because they are still hunting down all the mafia bosses because they know that if they don't kill every single fucking member of the mafia, they're going to turn around and wreck their shit. They will be absolutely boned if they can't get, you know, every influential mafia. It's funny to me, though, that people think like, oh, we'll just kill the boss and everything will be good. It's like, don't you think there's people under the boss that could like that will step up and like it's just never ending? Yeah, exactly. All of this is going down. And another member of the mafia, Giuseppe Veranazio, who is with who is with the mafia, he wants to open up a gambling house. And it's like, guy, gambling is for the Camorra. Yeah, stop this. And so this, of course, pisses off the Navy Street boys, who we've talked about before. They're a sect of the Camorra. 
And they're going to hatch a plan to kill this mafia member. So this Giuseppe is walking around minding his own business. He sees a Navy Street member. He tries to kill him, but then he's spotted by more members of the Camorra, so he has to leave. During this time, it's kind of open season on all of these Mafia and Camorra members. If they saw each other out on the street, it was, as the kids say, on site. Yeah, wow. And since the Camorra were having very little success killing these Mafia members, they decided to go after their businesses next. So they tried to wrest control of the artichoke business <laughs> from... <laughs> Sorry. Artichokes were huge at this time, especially in the Italian They're community. They're delicious. So- it's just not what I was expecting, like, would come up. Like, you don't think about how big the industry is for, like, artichokes, onions, like, broccoli, whatever. But then you hear about it and it's like, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, artichokes are really big in Italian cuisine. So, like, oh, whoever artichoke controls... are so fucking good. Yeah. Whoever controls the artichokes is king, baby. <laughs> Of course, the Camorra didn't have enough power to do this, so they failed once again. Through this time, they are still killing each other back and forth, back and forth. And the, and the Camorra is able to kill a lot of Mafia members during this time. But they didn't kill the right Mafia members. <laughs> because one slippery, wiggly boy got away. Ralph Daniello was just a small member of the Navy Street Boys. And those are Camorra. And he decided he wanted out, so he escaped to Reno with his 16-year-old girlfriend. Ugh. After being acquitted of robbery and abduction charges. Uh-oh. So he had big beef with... Do you remember Vorello? He's another. He's like the head of the Navy Street guys, and they're Camorra. He was not paying his Camorra soldiers enough money, and so our guy Ralph was like, "Hey, will you pay me more money?" And he's like, mm, "I don't think so." So, <laughs> in the summer of 1917. Ralph the Butcher ended up writing a letter to the NYPD offering to sell them information about the Camorra. Damn. Uh-oh. Snitches get stitches. Well, in this case, Ralph the Butcher spent nearly two months telling the police everything that he knew about the Camorra. And so... They were able to solve about 24, a little over 24 murders, and they were able to get leads on hundreds of open cases. And it was the biggest mob collaboration in history. And within a couple of weeks, most of the Camorra was behind bars. Damn. So this was an extremely, this was a watershed moment in American crime syndicate history because this is the moment where you know in this moment we could have been watching Kimura movies and people dressing up as Kimura members but we don't we dr- we have mafia movies people um talk about mafia bosses this utter defeat this annihilation of the Kimura through this confession cemented the mafia in american popular consciousness Now we think mob, mafia, there's a direct connection. And because the Camorra were wiped out so completely, the mafia was able to dominate the Italian crime scene to to the present. Yeah, entirely. Yeah, because at the beginning, I was going to say, I don't know that I've ever heard of the Camorra. And this is And there's a reason. Yes, exactly. Because if you don't pay your people good, they will snitch on you. Yeah. Even more um, important is that because the Camorra were shut out of the crime scene because of, you know, being so heavily imprisoned, they were not able to join an organization called the Five Families, which is America's most prevalent crime uh, syndicate to this day. And of course, the Morello family would become the Genovese family, which if that rings any bells to you, is one of the most dangerous American crime families in history. And we'll probably cover them another time. Yeesh. Cool. 
So when you're sitting around with your family on Thanksgiving, be glad <laughs> that they are not the mafia. And if they are, remember to pay everyone fairly. Yeah, and good luck to you. And good luck to you. That's my story. Boom. That was awesome. Thank you. Well, uh, everybody go grab an artichoke heart, suck it dry, and we'll see you back real soon. Yummy, yummy, yummy. Hey, guys, I'm Shelby, host of Addicted to Crime podcast. Join us for deep, chilling dives into the evil nature of criminals, and let's take a closer look at their early life and background to see how they got to the day of the crime. This podcast was created in hopes you pay closer attention to your surroundings and hopefully stay safe. You can find us anywhere you get your podcasts or else on the website www.addictedtocrime.org. Happy listening. Thanks for your time and stay safe. Hey, if you don't give me that artichoke, I'm going to shoot you in the street. (laughs) No, please. I don't have enough. Hollandaise sauce made yet. Let me finish the Hollandaise. I don't know. What do they serve with artichoke hearts? I don't know. I'm a big fan of just like, you like boil the whole artichoke and then you just melt a bunch of butter in like a little bowl and you just Oh, there you go. Dip the artichoke leaves, maybe some garlic up in there. Let's see. Okay, I just looked it up. Artichokes go well with uh, dairy, like butter, cream cheese, goat cheese, sour cream, cream sauces, Parmesan, and feta. All right, all right, all right. It all sounds good. I'm just thinking about the meal we're going to have later, and I'm just salivating. I know. I'm a hungry boy. <laughs> um, okay, so getting into my my delightful topic. Uh, it's still murder. I'm still talking about it. <laughs> Caitlin, why don't you give this murder thing a rest? I can't. <laughs> I, I like talking about it. I don't necessarily like the actions. I never like the actions of murderers. God, what am I saying? But I just think there are lessons to be learned in these cases. And there's a lot there's a lot to learn. I'm sorry to derail us very quickly. But Did you see, you know, that guy who like ran over a bunch of people with his car? Mm -hmm. Did you see that he was sentenced to about a thousand years in prison? Yeah, hell yeah. God, and he represented himself. Oh, God. Such an asshole move when they do that. It's like, you're guilty as fuck in my eyes when I see that. I'm going to send you a YouTube video um, of this like cool like lawyer who she breaks down like why it's unwise to represent yourself. Oh, yeah. (laughs) But with him as an example. And I love that. I love that. We'll put that in the show notes. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So um, so for today's story, I am going to tell you about the murder of 25 year old Cody Johnson. Oh, Cody. Uh, Yes. So my sources for this were BBC, uh, GlacierNationalParkTravelGuide.com, Murderpedia, CNN, Medium, and then (laughs) FlatheadBeacon.com. My homepage, Uh, of course. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So Cody Johnson meets Jordan Graham at church in Montana in like 2011, 2012. Oh, whoa. This is recent. This is pretty recent. Yeah. Cody wasn't super religious at the time, but Jordan was. And I guess they started dating each other and then they started going to church more and more. That's kind of where their relationship started. And like the basis of it was their faith. Cody was like very quickly in love with Jordan. He thought she was just like the shit. But mutual friends sort of reported that Jordan didn't necessarily seem to have the same feelings about her boyfriend, Cody, as Cody felt about her. Oh, no. She would make excuses to not hang out with him. Friends said that they never saw them like kiss or hug or like be affectionate with each other. So when they started talking about marriage, everybody was like, what the fuck? Yeah. Because it was like, they don't seem like they're that happy or like he seems happy, but she doesn't seem happy. Yeah. So everybody was pretty surprised when he proposed to her and she said yes after one year of dating. Oh, girl, just say no. Just say no if you don't want to marry him. Like, I know it's really hard and like... I myself am so guilty of this, of like, we've talked about this a couple times. There's a guy at the supermarket who keeps trying to fucking talk to me. And I always try to be nice because I don't want to be a bitch. 
but like just it's rip off the band-aid tell people you don't like them yeah it's like it's it's hard to do it's way easier said than done yes but if people were honest with each other all the time we would live in a very different world i think i mean i just like like every true crime podcast i'll say it right here and i'll say it right now divorce them don't kill them yes another thing like just go to therapy (laughs) just please Please. I mean, we're, we're preaching to the choir. Our listeners know this. So she posts a picture of her ring on Instagram and people are like, oh, OK, I guess they're they're doing it. Wow. It doesn't make a lot of sense. They got married June 29th, 2013. Apparently during the wedding, Jordan was like looking down during the ceremony. She like wasn't looking at Cody and she appeared very uncomfortable and didn't seem very like happy and smiling like you would expect on someone's wedding day. Oh, God, that sucks. Jordan's friend and maid of honor, Katrina, later said that Jordan was definitely having cold feet before the wedding. She had asked Katrina several times if like this was the right decision. And then like it says right after the wedding ceremony. But I mean, who knows what that actually means? But allegedly she texted Katrina, quote, I should be happy and I'm just not. Oh, God. Other friends chime in uh, with their opinion. So Cody's groomsman, his name is Cameron. He had warned Cody not to marry Jordan, saying, quote, she was just very distant and reserved. Their interaction with each other, it didn't seem like a happy, loving relationship that you would normally see. It was just very awkward. Yeah, I think, Fred, I think, you know, you have no idea what's going on in like another person's relationship, right? Like, the private course, times that like, yeah, like people are alone together. You have no idea what, you know, that's like. But I think, you know, when you have really close friends, they know you super well. And like, I think their opinions are just very val- valid and valuable. Yeah. And like, not necessarily like you need to live your life based off the opinions of others. You never should. Of course should. not. Yeah. But, but if all of your friends are telling you that something is wrong, like all the people you care about or a, a good amount of people, just maybe take inventory of that. You know, like just do some soul searching again. Go to fucking therapy. Yeah, because you don't want to get yourself into a situation where now you're suddenly married to someone and it's so, so clear that it's not going to work out. But she just wanted to, I guess, make him happy or like was too afraid to say no. It's so, so messy and unclear why she even agreed to marry him in the first place when most people knew that it wasn't like you you can tell if a relationship is loving like we've all been around that couple where they're just like fighting the whole time that you're with them yeah it doesn't seem like they were like fighting they were just like not comfortable with each other and that's also weird yeah definitely uh well proceed (laughs) yeah you can see maybe where this is going uh i just i don't want it to though I feel so bad for this guy because, like, I feel like he has blinders on. Like, you know, he's got the love blinders on, which we've all had the love blinders on. They're very strong. Of course. Of course. They can block out the biggest red flags. And I just, you know, but even my in my mind, I'm like, I wish I could go back in time and like shake this dude but it sounds like people did people tried it seems like their friends were you know i mean hindsight's twenty twenty, but exactly their friends said that they tried apparently thing she had very uh like negative things to say about their sex life and i don't know if that meant that because you know like they're religious so maybe we can infer that they were waiting until marriage. And so maybe she was like afraid to have sex. It's not really clear. uh, But allegedly, she texted Jordan texted her friend Katrina, she told Cody she was on her period. And so they wouldn't have to consummate the marriage. Yeah. I mean, I think sex is always like a tricky thing where it's like, you know, she she should definitely never feel obligated to like have sex with him, right? Like, like, she should like, You know, she should never feel like, oh, I should just have sex with him because he like wants me to. But also like if you're not in a like asexual relationship specifically, like sex is a big part of like, you know, intimate relationships. And the fact that she was just like trying to get 
out of it by lying rather than saying, hey, I'm uncomfortable with this, where they could have had like a discussion about it. It seems like she just wanted to blame other things rather than telling him about the actual root of her problem. And that, I mean, I'm not married, but I assume that you should be able to tell your person what your issues are and you should be able to like speak with them openly. And if you're just like hiding behind, oh, I'm on my period, like don't touch me. That's not help. That's not good for anybody to be just like lied to or lying. No, and I think that's definitely like, you know, we can armchair psychologists like all we want. Like, I don't know what I'm talking about. You actually have a degree. But like, um, I think that speaks to like, yeah, a larger problem. Like, I think, you know, something else was going on there for her. Definitely. Yeah. And that the thing about, you know, waiting until marriage, that's just me guessing. It was yeah. not spelled out in any of my sources. I'm just like, speculating because they were religious yeah or she was particularly at least so now that we've got the backstory we're gonna jump ahead to eight days eight days after their wedding it's july 8th 2013 and cody doesn't show up for work oh no i hate this part this is where it gets bad. So his family and friends are concerned. He's not the type of guy. Sounds like he was pretty responsible. He's not the type of guy to just, you know, be a no call, no show. Mm -hmm. Jordan's like, oh, he left yesterday. Um, and remember, nobody's heard from him in eight days. She's like, oh, he left yesterday. I don't know where he went. Uh, but, you know, it's probably fine. And they're kind of like, wait, what? Like, we haven't heard from him in eight days. You're saying you haven't heard from him in a day and you don't know where he is, but you're fine with that? That doesn't That's really make husband. a lot of sense. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, uh, don't don't you want to know? Like, <laughs> yeah, if if Joe doesn't text me in like, you know, like a six hour period, I'm like, he's been taken. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to have to do a Liam Neeson style taken. <laughs> Get your shit, Caitlin. We're going. <laughs> We're off to wherever. Belgium. He's been taken by the Belgians. <laughs> oh, the Belgians, they're coming. So the more his friends and family pressed, apparently the more like agitated Jordan got. At one point, she allegedly took her wedding ring off and threw it across the room in front of people. Oh, that's not good. Yeah. So everybody's like, uh, what? Like, what's going on? So she's no help. So police get involved. Hmm. Now she's telling another story. She tells investigators that Cody texted her that he was going for a drive with some friend from out of state. Remember, they're in like Montana. Mm -hmm. And she, oh, we actually, we delete all of our text messages. So I don't have t anything to show you. But he texted me that he was going for a drive and I haven't heard from him since. And I, I don't have any evidence of that. Just take my word for it. We delete all our text messages? I don't know. Really? I'm sorry. And it's 2013. So like you would think they'd be able to like, look that figure that out. Like, just because you delete a message doesn't mean that data has gone. I feel like no, but like, did we have like the cloud and shit? Then? Uh, who knows? But it's sus. Yeah. Definitely. Mm -hmm. So she tells her friends later on, like police are investigating. They're starting to put put up like missing flyers. And she's like, Oh, I just got an email from one of Cody's friends, and his name is Tony S. Tony. And Tony, Tony sent this email that says that Cody is dead, and he fell off a cliff on a trip to Glacier National Park. What? Yep. So Tony sent me this email, guys, and I act, look, I actually have the proof this time. Like, here's the email. This is wild. Who is and Tony? So, <laughs> who's Tony? Good question. You'll find out soon. <laughs> Yes. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So this is the best lead that they've got so far. So they're starting to investigate Glacier National Park. <laughs> Jordan gets a gaggle of her friends and I think Cody's brother as well together on July 11th and says, God has a plan and I'm going to find Cody. Like, I'm, I'm not quoting, but basically she's like, yeah, get in losers. We're going to go find Cody. <laughs> Because God knows, so I know. Well, you know, God knows a lot of stuff. So I I would be inclined to, to trust him on this one. Apparently, all the people in the car would later say that she was in a really weirdly good mood. She was like <laughs> laughing and singing and just, 
you know, not really acting the way somebody whose husband is missing, like their brand new husband is missing. This is a brand spanking new husband. And, he... and she's gotten an email that says he's dead in Glacier National Park. She's like laughing and singing in the car. Like what? I... <laughs> yeah, no. If that happened to me, I don't even know. There's... I would be on an amount of medication that is not understandable by human thought. <laughs> it's just, yeah, the, it's, she's not. And I've said this before, I, I hope, and I'll, but I'll say it again. You can't judge someone's trauma response from the outside necessarily no. because people respond to trauma in a lot of different ways. It's not necessarily like big a big breakdown and crying and stuff, they can turn inward and appear very cold, but they're, you know, that's not the case at all. Yeah, I think, you know, it's a big thing to consider that like everyone has a different response and that the brain does weird things when you're experiencing trauma. Yeah. But I don't know. All these things are not stacking up and looking very good for Jordan. It's just an it's just a circumstance that just boggles the mind. <laughs> So she drives the the crew to this area in Glacier National Park called the Loop, and they go to this ravine. It's about a 200-foot-tall ravine, and they immediately find Cody's body at the bottom of the ravine. She apparently looks over the edge and goes, oh my gosh, it's him. Wow. That was fast. Yeah. God led her right to him. Can you believe that? I actually cannot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> Again, allegedly on the drive back, she said, well, now that we've found the body, we can have a funeral and the police can get out of it. Okay. Well, she sang the quiet part out loud. Yep. <laughs> yeah. And it's like, either way, just because you found his body, there still needs to be an investigation, bro. Like, remember Tony's email that you received? that said he was dead and now he's at the bottom of a ravine dead it's like there's gonna be an investigation no matter what yeah unfortunately by finding the body you've actually made the case against you stronger this is what some criminals do they need to insert themselves into the investigation and it makes no fucking sense yeah it's hard yeah it's hard to fathom the reasoning on that and investigators were pretty baffled as well. So when they brought Jordan in for questioning on July 16th, 2013, they're like, how did you find Cody's body so quickly? And she says that she, you know, God led her there. And it was the one place that Cody had wanted to see before he died. So of course, that's where his dead body was going to be, right? That's not how that works, actually. So remember, this is like the third version of events so far like first she's like he left yesterday i don't know where he is then it's oh he left a while ago on a drive with a buddy and now it's like well i knew where his body was because it's the place that he wanted to visit before he died so <laughs> something's not adding up so here comes some real police work. Surveillance cameras show Jordan and Cody entering the park in Cody's car, and then they show her leaving by herself. Well, there you go. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> riddle me this. <laughs> Good job, officers. She had originally said that she and Cody weren't fighting up until his disappearance, but Cody's text messages to his friends and family said that they were having trouble. Uh, it wasn't very good eight days in. And uh, though he felt like he had married the right person, he had he was struggling. The most damning piece of evidence is that the IP address of Tony S's email was Jordan's parents house and actually her stepfather's computer had been where the email originated from. Oh, no, Tony, you're not yep. real. Yeah. Who could have predicted this one? So at this point, it's pretty clear what's going on. Police are presenting her with all of this evidence. And she does finally confess to accidentally pushing Cody off a cliff. I would love for you to tell me how someone accidentally pushes someone off a cliff. Well, I'll tell you what she told people. <laughs> But uh, what the injuries to Cody's body showed were that he had fallen head first and he had injuries to his arms and head. And there was also a piece of cloth next to his body that some believed could have been a blindfold. Wow. 
That's, oh, that's, that gives me the heebie-jeebies in a big way. So Jordan is charged with first degree murder and one count of making false statement to police and she's arrested. She pleads not guilty and testifies that, you know, she uh, was having second thoughts and about her marriage to Cody and they went for a hike in Glacier National Park and they were talking, talking, then it escalated into an argument. She told the court that Cody grabs her arm during a fight and she defends herself by pushing him off a cliff. She said, quote, I wasn't thinking about where we were. I just pushed. Oh. And then she drove home in Cody's car by herself. And of course, didn't tell anybody that he was at the bottom of a ravine where, you know, I assume he probably died on impact if he went head first, but medical attention could have could have come well, and determined that, you know, it, it's just it's sad and it's hideous. And he's been married for eight days. And it's all, like this happens. You marry somebody that's not right for you, and then eight days later, you kill him? Like, fuck you. Yeah, it's... This story is very upsetting, because I feel like this guy was just... He... There was a whole other world he didn't know about going on in her head. Exactly. And and then this, you know, for him, probably came out of nowhere. And just what a horrible fucking way to die. What a horrible way to die. That's, that's fucking hideous. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It is. It's like, get a divorce, please. Like, leave, run away. There are so, like, tell him. Those are Just both tell terrible. Him. Those are not great things, but it's like, you never, ever need to push somebody off a cliff that you're in a relationship with or married to. Like, you don't have to get it to that point. There's no reason. No, no. This... The rationale on this one is very hard to get behind. Yeah, so so she claims, I'm glad you said that, that leads into this perfectly. In court, she said that she was fearful of having to fulfill sexual obligations in her marriage and that she was physically ill at the thought of having sex with her husband. She also said that he wanted her to like do things in the bedroom that she wasn't comfortable with. I have... Who knows if that's true? Um. See, this is the hard part about this one, because like, (sighs) yeah, like we said, just like communication would have solved a lot of not solved, but like gone a long way for these people. But it's like so hard because like fear, like having a fear of sex or like having a fear of someone having sex with you without your consent, like that's completely valid. You know, your body, your own autonomy, like if you have a fear of someone being in your space and touching you in a way you don't like, you know, I don't think you should be made to do those things. But it's hard because like then the action she took because of that or if that's how she really felt, I just, you know, it's like we said, it's never necessary to push someone off a cliff, but also like. Just the the sexual stuff makes it sticky for me in this way. You know what I mean? But just to just from another perspective, you know, she was saying this all after the fact. So he's dead. He can't defend himself. Yeah, no, he can't say anything about it. And we know she has a history of lying. Exactly. So I (laughs) I have with this particular case, I I have trouble believing her. It seems to me like it's very plausible that she could be saying all these things to try and defend her actions that day when really all that needed to happen was they needed to not be married or they needed to get a divorce or, you know, how did they even get to this point? You know, I mean, it's it's extremely, extremely rare, but like people do lie about these things. It's, you know, I feel like in, you know, I don't have any statistics, but like most Most of the time, like, people don't want to, like, own up to this stuff. Like, people don't want to say this stuff because there's a lot of shame around it. So it's, like, the amount of people who lie about it is very small. But the people who do, that's incredibly insidious because it invalidates Mm -hmm. everyone else for which this is true. You know, that's why why I'm having a hard time because it's, like, you know, she could be a liar and, and this is her defense. This is her way of justifying pushing her fucking husband off a cliff. But the other part mm-hmm. of me is like, what if she really was afraid to like do sex stuff with him and he was like pressuring her? But it's, you know, 
But you say that that, you know, if you look at her pattern of behavior, you know, you see where I'm at here, right? Yeah, yeah, it's tricky. And she did something buckwild in the trial right before closing arguments. Remember, she pleaded not guilty at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Right before closing arguments, she changes her plea to guilty and accepts a plea deal for second degree murder rather than first degree. And she got 30 years in prison. She was sentenced on March 27th, 2014. Wow. Yeah. Hard to know what to make of, of that. Yeah. Uh, the sentencing judge, U.S. District Judge Donald Malloy, said at her sentencing, quote, there's only one person in this room that knows what happened, and I don't think she's been entirely truthful, which is mm. a very fair statement, I think. Yes. Now, there was, in 2015, a federal public defender named Michael Donahoe, or Donahue, I'm sorry, I don't know, uh, filed an appeal on Jordan Graham's behalf, saying that her sentence was extreme, slash they wanted, they've tried a lot of different, like, legal tactics. They wanted a new trial, uh, because they wanted her to be retried for manslaughter, I guess. One of my sources said that at one point she confessed to using that blindfold as part of the, like... Uh, oh no timeline of events but that was only one source so i i don't know if she ever actually confessed to blindfolding him it seems like her story changes very often exactly exactly but like the prosecution believes that she has no right to request a new trial because she took a fucking plea deal yeah and knew you didn't exactly what she it. was getting yeah. into So it's like, what are you doing? So anyway, on February 17th, 2016, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals filed a formal mandate in her case that ended any hope she had of appealing her case. She's just going to have to suck it up. I mean, sorry, bitch. 30 years, like, it could have been life. Yeah. Ugh. This one is, this one is a puzzle for the brain, but also boils my blood. Yeah. The more I find out about it. Yep. And that's my story. Oh, (laughs) God, Caitlin. You have been on such a fucking hot streak with your murders lately. Wow. That one is, that one's so intense. Eight days. Eight days of marriage and this happened. Ah, man. And it's like, this is interesting because it's super relevant. There's a case that's in the news. Do you know about this? I forget what her name is. I think her name is Christian. She's an influencer, like fitness model, OnlyFans lady. And she was in this like toxic, abusive type relationship. But it's hard to tell who is abusing who if or if it's like a mutual mm-hmm. thing. But um, she did stab her boyfriend with a serrated blade and killed him. Jesus. Um, and it's it's another one of these really difficult things because there's footage of her in this, you know, hotel lobby where like a hotel or like a apartment lobby where like an employee had to get between him charging at her. But there's also footage from an elevator where it looks like they're fighting each other and she's the aggressor. So it's messy, messy, messy. Exactly. I haven't heard of that. Yeah, I want to look into this case a little bit more. But it's this thing of like, you know, like the judge said, there's only one person around to tell the story of what happened. Mm hmm. And, you know, in cases like this with domestic violence, it's, you know, it's just it's really difficult because men are victims of domestic violence. Mm -hmm. And I feel like people don't take that into account a lot of the time. Yeah. This. What can we learn from this? Uh, Well, people should never do anything that they don't want to do. Yes. But you also have to talk about your feelings as much as it sucks sometimes. And if you're not happy in a relationship, you're not going to be happy in a marriage to that same person. So you got to maybe figure it out before the ring's on your finger. Yeah, I think communication would have gone a long way. And what can we learn from the mob wars? Don't get greedy. Exactly. Don't get greedy and always pay your employees fairly. We love that. Okay, well, we got to get to cooking. 
<laughs> yeah, I really do. I gotta get yams going. <laughs> So uh, happy holidays, everyone. I know this is going to come out after Thanksgiving, but uh, hope hope you had a great one. And we'll see you next week. Yeah, we love you. And as always, Bon Voyage. Goodbye. Gobble, gobble. Thanks for listening to Anything Bones. Follow us on Instagram or Facebook at Anything Bones Podcast or email us at anythingbonespodcast at gmail.com. Thank you to Nick Kruger for our spooky music and Stephen Vetteroff at Chubby Scrubby on Twitter for our jazzy vocals. And thank you to Camilla Franklin at Camilla Strader on Instagram for our beautiful bony artwork. Please rate, review, and subscribe. I know, I'm a hungry boy. Yummy, yummy, yummy. <laughs>